The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. What a great time to be together. It's good to see you all. What a blessing to hear you singing, to be able to express the things that we've expressed in song, uh, to pray together. Well, uh, open your Bibles to John 17. We're going to focus on verses 6 through 8. And uh, our focus this morning has to do with four truths that Jesus mentions about the people given to him by the Father. Truths that, that should be true of us as well. Let's pray. Let's pray together uh, before we go to God's word. Father, that you chose us, that you chose a people who left to themselves were not seeking after you and would never come to you unless you first did a work in us. Father, this is grace. We've sung of your grace. We praise you for your glorious grace. Wonderful, amazing, saving grace. And we've just sung that you would open our eyes, open our eyes to the truth of your grace. Help us to see that we truly have no room for boasting and all glory belongs to you, God. Thank you for your word, this, this prayer of Jesus. Help us to love him more as we see his care for his own. And we pray in his name. Amen. John 17, verses 6 through 8. We're just in the middle of Jesus' prayer. He prays to the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. You know, sometimes when we pray, we pray in a real general way. Things like, Lord, uh, may you be glorified. Or, Lord, uh, we ask for your blessing. And other times we might get really specific. We might pray for physical healing or for a certain outcome that we think is uh, good. Um, In this short prayer, you know, it takes like three to four minutes to read it. It's a short prayer. An amazing prayer that we are so blessed to be able to read. We might expect Jesus, you know, he's, he's approaching the cross. And we might expect him to pray in a general way for all people, that they would understand his sacrifice and come to a saving faith in him. But instead, what do we hear in his prayer? A prayer with a repeated acknowledgement of a specific people. 
a people whom the Father has given to him. Five times in this three, four-minute prayer, five times Jesus prays mentioning those whom the Father has given to him. You might highlight these in your Bibles, the phrase, whom you have given me or gave me. It's repeated in verses 2 and 6 and 9 and 11 and 24. You know, when words are repeated in Scripture, we need to pay attention. We think of holy, holy, holy. It's, a, it's an emphasis on who God is. Or when Jesus says, truly, truly, we're like, okay, better pay attention to what he has to say here. We should care about what Jesus emphasizes in this prayer. And of all things that he might emphasize in this very special prayer, he emphasizes election. He emphasizes a particular care for his own people. And so we should care about this. We should know what it means that the Father chose a people and gave them to his Son. We see this truth in several places of God's word. In Romans 8, we read that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. In Ephesians 1, we're taught that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In Revelation 13 and 20, we learn that there's a book of life written before the foundations of the world. All whom the Father chooses, whom he gives to the Son, are written in this book. He knows you. He knew you before he created the world. He decided to love you. And yes, this truth is uh, its mind-blowing. It's hard to comprehend. But it is told to us. And we see all throughout the Old Testament that God graciously chooses a people and calls them his own. Jesus clearly teaches this truth, especially in the Gospel of John, in John 6, John 10. It's assumed everywhere in the New Testament, explained all over the place. And here in Jesus' high priestly prayer, five times, five times he prays for an elect people, chosen by the Father and given specifically to Jesus so that he might die for them and forgive them and reconcile them to the Father. It's all over Scripture. And yet, so many Christians struggle with it. And they reject what is clearly stated by coming up with with assumed definitions of love, saying that God can only love, love us if he leaves the decision to us. Oh, thank God he did not leave the decision to us. That is actually a curse when God leaves people to themselves. But that, people assume that we're actually capable of seeing what Scripture says we're dead and blind to. 
I love this teaching of election. Not because it makes me feel somehow um, superior, but for the exact opposite reason. And I say that because that's what people will, will say. I'm convinced that it, this teaching must be right because it actually removes any possibility of boasting in myself. In reality, it strips us of pride. It's the only view that truly fits with grace and mercy. And it matters because we should want to praise God for his glorious grace. So when I hear people respond to this teaching with comments like, well, it seems kind of arrogant, like you think you're better than those other people who aren't chosen. When I hear something like that, I know that people truly misunderstand because the simple reality is it's the exact opposite of that. The exact opposite of that. It's the opposite because the basis of God's choice is not me. It's not due to us. It's not like two captains picking a team and choosing the ones that are going to help them win. No, God's grace is unconditional. When God's word says that he has mercy on whom he has mercy, it means that his decision is free. He doesn't have mercy on those who stand out in any way. He's not obligated. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. And and the funny thing is, if there's any view that's arrogant, it's the one that thinks we're capable. We're special. And that it's somehow God's choice... um, that somehow God's choice is based upon us and some requirement that we've met. No, it's unmerited favor. It's grace. And sadly, most Christians say that they love God's grace, and yet I don't think they understand God's grace. They believe that God chooses them based upon him looking down some imaginary, unbiblical corridor of time and seeing those who would freely choose him. And based upon this, this is the typical explanation of how God chooses. He looks down some corridor of time and he sees those who would choose him. And based upon what he sees, he chooses them. So it's based upon us. That's arrogant. That's not grace. I have to ask, wouldn't this be the epitome of arrogance? Wouldn't this belief absolutely destroy and contradict grace? If we read our Bibles, none of us can deny that God does choose people. The debate is over how. And if we make human free will the basis of God's choice, if God chooses those who left to themselves will choose him, then isn't God choosing those who are infinitely smarter and wiser? After all, it is a decision that has a dramatic impact on forever. Not only is it the most wise decision a person can make, but 
It's also the most righteous decision a person can make. It, isn't it inherently good to join God's side and the evil to reject him? So if God's decision is based upon your decision, then isn't he simply choosing those who are wise and good? Haven't we in some way earned God's favor? And wouldn't he be somehow obligated to choose the ones that he sees choosing him? And if this is the case, then how can we sing of his unmerited favor? How can we sing of his grace? How can we... How can he have mercy on whom he has mercy if he must give it to us, if he's obligated? What is mercy? So, no, I don't believe the doctrine of election is in any way arrogant. In fact, what it does is strip us of any possibility of boasting in our decision because the only reason that we love God at all is because he first loved us. The only reason we chose to believe in him and trust him is because he first chose us and then opened our eyes. Opened our eyes to his beauty, to his saving grace. And with eyes open to such infinite beauty, we, like Lazarus, cannot resist coming to Jesus as we walk out of a tomb into everlasting life. In saying all of this, I sometimes feel like I need to apologize because I know there are people who hear it and it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's irritating. And I don't want to irritate anyone. But I do want people to know that I want us to know what Paul seems to know in Ephesians 1 as he speaks of this Doctrine, not as an egg-headed exercise, but as worship to the praise of God's glorious grace. It's worship. This is praise. God is worthy. And yes, there's all sorts of wrong conclusions that people come to. It's hard to comprehend. We're not, but we're not told to discern who is and who isn't a part of God's elect. We're just told to share the gospel and what will be some of the resulting evidence of of God's work as he does the work. So I want to think about some of the work, some of the evidence, some of the marks that that are common to the people of God that Jesus mentions here. Four, Four marks. First, we... We know God through Jesus. In verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. In his prayer, Jesus states the success of his mission. He came to manifest, to reveal to, to a specific people, to those given to him by the Father. It was his job to show them who God truly is. And yes, people may, they may know some true things about God by looking at creation. But the only way that they can know the extent of God's love is through the sending of his son. God's, his name, his 
character, his attributes are are perfectly revealed to a people by giving them the very word of God. And Jesus is not speaking only about his past earthly ministry, about his miracles and teachings and good works. Yes, he's manifested the Father through these things, but Jesus has his whole ministry in mind, which includes the cross, which includes the the resurrection. So what does it say about the Father that Jesus would willingly die? What does it say about the Father? How is he manifested, revealed? What, what characteristics of the Father through the resurrection, through the ascension? The Father's name, when we say name, it's the essence of his character, his nature. And Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus embodies what we are told of God throughout the Old Testament. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The names of God say something about him. God is the creator. He is almighty. He is the most high. He is the one who sees. He is Lord of hosts. He is our provider. And concerning his name, God said to Moses, tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am. And when Jesus claimed to be I am, those given to him by the Father believed. And those who were a part of the world picked up rocks. Those given to Jesus will believe that Jesus is God, that he perfectly manifests or reveals the Father to us. And speaking of Father, Jesus also revealed, he encouraged another name that was much less common in the Old Testament. He gave them the name Father. People wrongly assume that God is everyone's Father. And yes, mankind is made in the image of God, and in that sense, they are his children. But this is not what Jesus has in mind as he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father. God is not an intimate, loving, adopting Father to those who do not believe in Jesus. Only Jesus manifests the name of God. And note that the people given to Jesus are given out of the world. There's a contrast. And the world does not know God. Jesus is unique and he uniquely reveals the Father to us. So a mark of a Christian is that we know God. That we continually grow in our knowledge and understanding of him, which is revealed in his word and most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. Those who do not know Jesus will come to wrong conclusions about God. Richard Phillips put it this way. Christians are not those who pray, O high, exalted, and unknowable God, beyond our reach and majesty, aloof above the petty concerns of men. But we pray, our Father, the Almighty, Most High, all-seeing God who is with us, to save and to bless. We know that God is high and holy and that we deserve his wrath 
And we also understand that he's just and he's merciful and willing to suffer in order to love us. I hope you know this truth of God. A second identifying mark of God's people is that we are taken out of the world. Yes, there is a contrast. We were in the world. We were dead in our sins, guilty, unbelieving, just like everyone in the world. And God graciously chose us out of the world and gave us to Jesus. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, you Christians, you think you're so holy? And when we hear this, we tend to react by pointing out that, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not better. It's not about being good. I'm just forgiven. So when we hear holy or the description of a saint, we may cringe and we may want to clarify things. And yet, we need to be careful in our denial because we, we are set apart by God. He has called us out of the world to be conformed into the holy image of Jesus. So there should be some evidence of holiness in us. Yes, we're not saved because of good works, but we're saved unto good works. When Jesus says we're taken out of the world, he's saying that we're set apart for God's good and holy purposes. He's saying we are saints. We are sanctified ones. There is a division, a distinction between the people of God and those who remain as a part of the world. God separates us from them. And it's not just to save us from hell. God has a purpose, something in mind for us, setting us apart, transforming us to show his greatness, his righteousness, his holiness. And because of this, we're, we're called to live by the power of the Holy Spirit in a different way with a, with a new power that guarantees the result that God promises. So sanctification doesn't only re- refer to that process whereby we progressively become more and more like Jesus, who is holy. But sanctification also has the meaning of being set apart by God set apart by God from the world. And so we understand that even though we're still in the world, we're not of the world. Because God has sanctified or set us apart. We are to live with different values. Now we belong to Christ. We, we should start thinking like his people and not like the world's people. So what is our thinking about? Things like money and pleasure and success. Hopefully we know there's nothing wrong with those things. If God's glory is the goal. But if your definition of success is simply your own personal fame. If it's your your own magnification. Drawing attention and praise to your, your great skill. Your talent. Um, even your generosity, even your, your kindness and goodness and compassion. If you're drawing attention to yourself, then you're just like the world. 
Do we strive after money with these kinds of things in mind? Is, is this what makes us happy? But if we're sanctified for God's use, then, then wouldn't it change the way that we think and live? Wouldn't we find a greater pleasure in, in pointing out God's greatness? Wouldn't it make us happy to, to follow him and strive after the only one we'll, ever be, we'll, we'll never become bored with? If it's about me, uh, that's going to wear out pretty quick. It's about God. I'm never going to be bored with that, with him. Wouldn't money and success as a set-apart one have to do with him and not you? Being a a telescope that magnifies God's greatness because everything else is, is small and fading? So as those who are set apart for a growing holiness that glorifies God. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says that we're no longer citizens of this world, but now we're citizens of heaven. We have new loyalties. We are to put off the old self. We're told to renew our minds, to put on a new self that looks like God's people. Sanctification is not I think a lot of people who call themselves Christians, they think of salvation and they just think of getting out of hell. My sanctification is not an optional bonus. It is our new reality, one that we really need to actually work out in our lives. Reading, thinking, praying, being a part of a church, humbly serving like Jesus and with a confident faith knowing that that we can do these things because God is the one who is at work in us for his good purposes to glorify himself. But don't just think of sanctification in in negative terms. We're not only separated out from the world, but even more so sanctification is a separation unto God. In the Bible holy things are not only taken away from the world, but they're designated as belonging to God for his service. Temple vessels and utensils and priests were set apart for useful service to God. Because you are sanctified. Oh, there's good news in that. The most ordinary, mundane parts of life have eternal significance. Now, it really is true that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you can do it to the glory of God. So we know God through, through Jesus, that he is the one who manifests or reveals God to us. And we no longer, no longer do we belong to the world. And third, a third mark is that we're a people who keep God's word. Jesus continues in verse 6 saying, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And the word keep means to lay hold of and secure. And as we've worked our way through the Gospel of John, we've heard Jesus use this word, warning those who only, who only hear his words but don't keep them. Or saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments And whoever does not love me does not keep my words. 
So a mark of a Christian is, is not just knowing, not just coming to church and hearing, not only reading, but securing, holding God's truth with lives that actually embrace and do what it says. The book of James makes this point over and over again that we're not hearers only, but doers of God's word. That a faith that doesn't respond with obedient good works is a dead faith that cannot save. And so we're not identified as a Christian just by agreeing with truth, but by obeying, by actively keeping the word of Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you do not really keep the word of God unless you obey it. It is a word that cannot be kept only in your intellect. It has to be put in your heart and in your will also. The man who keeps the word of God is the man whose whole personality is keeping it. The man who is meditating and rejoicing in it, whose heart warms to it and so obeys it. And keeping God's word, it will have that sense of delight. The first psalm doesn't just contrast a person who walks in worldly ways with someone who walks in righteous ways. Doing is important, but our doing, our keeping of God's word should also be our delight. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And keeping God's word implies being fruitful. Because the same man not only delights himself and meditates, but he is said to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither and all that he does, he prospers. We are to be marked as those who keep, who cling to and joyfully live according to God's truth. Finally, those whom the Father gives to Jesus are those who receive Jesus as God's only gift of salvation. Jesus describes it this way in verse 7. Now they know, now they know that everything that you, Father, have given me is from you. Now this isn't to say that the disciples knew everything and that they, that they had everything right and didn't struggle to grow in their faith. No, the point is, that they, unlike the world, knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew he was sent from God the Father, and that everything that Jesus offers them is ultimately from God. So it's not merely knowing biblical truth, but knowing that it all points to, it all culminates in the person of Jesus. Think of the unbelieving Jewish leaders who who studied God's word and who knew the law and liked to emphasize keeping it as well as their many man-made laws added on to it. Though they were following God, they rejected Jesus. And that rejection of Jesus was ultimately a rejection of God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the disciples didn't, yes, they didn't know anything. They didn't know everything. They knew some things. Uh, Like us, they struggled. 
but all true believers will receive Jesus as God's only way of salvation. This is the point of verse 8. The disciples have received the message of the Father given through Jesus. Now they know the truth because they know and believe in and follow Jesus. The details of our faith, they are they're important. We need, to, we need to keep growing in our knowledge of God for the sake of loving Him more and being, a set, being set apart for His glory. And we may and we are at different stages, different levels of maturity, those who make up the body of Christ. But these four marks, they should be true in all of us. From a small child and a simple faith, to a person who's walked with Jesus for their whole life, decades. We know God through Jesus. We're not of the world because God has set us apart. We keep his word by doing it. We receive Jesus as God's one and only gift of salvation. When it comes to election... You know, I think I understand why people are uncomfortable with it. One big reason is that it makes us nervous to not be in control, particularly of our children's eternity. It makes us nervous. We love them so much. But here's the real problem. We may be able to manipulate their words even their emotions. But we don't have the power to change their hearts. And words don't save. Saying some magic words doesn't bring about salvation. Even tears don't prove the Spirit's indwelling. No, only Jesus saves. Only God. Only God has the power to remove a heart of stone. And to give a heart of flesh, a a heart that truly loves him and believes in him. Only God can give your loved ones to Jesus. But there's good news. The good news is he's given your child to you. Your children are born into a Christian home. That they have you to pray for them, to teach them, that they are or were exposed to the gospel is no mere coincidence. God is sovereign over these things as well. And he's not only one who ordains the end result of who his people are, but the means, the various means to that end, he ordains as well. And this applies to each of us, to those who are not parents, to singles as well. You may be an aunt or an uncle. You may be a friend. If you're a part of this church, then you have a family with a lot of little ones that you can have a major impact on. You have a role. You have an influence. You have the ability to love and to serve and to teach. You know, I'm thankful that I grew up in the church. I was surrounded by 
family and church family that impacted me for Jesus. And honestly, I, I have no idea when I was saved. I, when I was little, I said a prayer. And maybe it was then, but then I look at my life and think, uh, is there any evidence? I don't think so. So I don't know when I, the moment of my salvation, because so much of my life didn't bear these marks of a true disciple of Christ. I have no idea because I was, you know, I was just simply surrounded by the truth of Jesus. And I found myself loving him. Believing, growing. So don't take this for granted. God is sovereign over all of this, over your influence, over your prayers, over your family devotions and conversations. So speak of Jesus often. Point him out as the hero. Read God's word. Talk about grace and what it means to live for Jesus. And thank God for Jesus in front of your kids. Thank him as a great gift. And keep praying for those <laughs> that you're not so sure about, that have walked away. God's word is there. Keep praying. Let's be a church family that points people to God through Jesus. Let's be a church family that stands out as being different from the world. Let's be a church family that that loves and keeps God's word and sees his truth in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for your glorious grace. You are sovereign and you are good. And there's so much that we don't comprehend. But your word is clear. You are the one who chose us and gave us to Jesus. You are the one working in us through the Holy Spirit, through your word, through Jesus who willingly came and lived and died for us. And we have hope because he is risen. Lord, may the, the truth of your word impact our lives. May we be a people who rightly see and love you because of Jesus. A, a people set apart for your good purposes. Those who love and obey and take joy in doing your word. Those who, who cling to and cherish your gift to us in Jesus. God, help us to see our roles, the various influences that you've given us for the sake of the gospel and that we might live with great purpose and joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.